I'm Salma Karachi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas San Antonio's neuroscience research podcast. So today is February 4th, and we're talking with Zane Librand, who has just started as assistant professor at Texas Women's University in Denton. Hi, Zane. Hi. So, and, hi. So until very recently, Zane used to be one of our own here at UTSA Neuroscience as an integral part of Jenny Shea's research group. Uh, his work there had a few different strains that concerned um, IP stem cell models of disease and then also uh, mechanisms of epileptogenesis. Um, so, and that's what we're gonna talk about today. Um, so for his own research program at TWU, he'll be taking these tools in tech and stem cell bio to work out some basic, uh, some of the basic science of regenerative medicine therapeutics to treat TBI. Do you want to say something about that, Zane? Sure. So we'll, we'll kind of get into it today, but uh, my background is really neuroscience. Uh, and I joined Jenny's lab a number of years ago and kind of became a stem cell biologist. And my independent direction, my new lab, uh, really is kind of an intersection of, of the of the two. So we focused for a long time, especially this paper we'll talk about today on epilepsy and mechanisms of epilepsy. And, and it kind of came out as a tangent. It wasn't really what I initially set off to do. So I'm able, now I'm, I'm excited I'm able to kind of get back to that initial question that, you know, that kind of got me interested in science in the first place. And that's brain regeneration and why the brain itself doesn't regenerate, why it can't repair itself. Um, and so we're using stem cells to model different traumatic brain injuries. Um, so this is growing organoids, cerebral organoids from different stem cell types, embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, and really trying to dissect out the neurobiology of non-traditional brain trauma. So severe brain injuries, impact brain injuries are pretty well studied animal models, rodent models, pig models, cell models, humans, you know, people have really studied this for a long time. We're really starting to appreciate how much we don't know about non-traditional forms of brain injury. An example of this is like a mild repetitive brain injury, something that may or may not, you know, give you a concussion, but repetitive incidences over time, uh, we know are starting to lead to possible neurodegeneration, you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, post-traumatic stress disorder. So we're using these stem cell models to um, try to dissect out these underlying mechanisms in the neurobiology of this. Um, at the same time, you know, we're trying to understand therapeutic ways to help repair the brain. Um, so if you've got a severe brain injury, right, the brain will not repair itself very well. But are there things we can do to encourage it? to repair itself? Uh, can we help it repair itself? Can we build um, you know, things that can help promote the regrowth and the regeneration of these brains? Super, and so you're just getting started this month in a beautiful new lab and recruiting students. So good luck with that. We hope to Thank hear you. more from you um, independently. So we're really lucky today to have Jenny Shea. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we also have first time uh, joining us is Chris Navarra, who is our, uh, a, a associate professor here at UTSA and also um, our like resident stem cell maven, huge uh, history in, in stem cells, which we should do a podcast with you at some point to talk about some of that. Um, okay, great. So let's get started. So um, so I'd like to take today to allow you guys to preview for the audience um, some fantastic new work that's literally in press as of today, or you just found out today. I'm not sure when it'll be available. So, um, at, and that's at Nature Communication. So in it, you 
painstakingly connect the dots between seizure insult and aberrant maturation of adult born granule cells that, and, and then the generation of spontaneous seizures. It's all sort of the hallmark of epileptogenesis. Um, so you report a mechanism that's based on aberrant calcium dynamics in these immature granule cells and that, that, and that you found is, is GABA-A uh, dependent and that it occurs in a very well-defined time window. So the, the study has some really interesting and, and heroic technical feats. Uh, that point to causality, um, and of course, some really fundamental implications for um, therapeutics in terms of disrupting epileptogenesis. So I hope we can talk about both, but can you first just talk to us about the, tell us, introduce us to the study, and especially about some of the fundamental questions that you were trying to get at with it. Sure, I think, so in the field of epilepsy, um, there's this really strong pull to start developing true anti-epileptic drugs. Um, there's a lot of medication right now. There's a lot of pharmacological therapies for patients with epilepsy, but it re they really function to suppress seizures. They don't actually get at the underlying cause of the disease, which it's complicated in its understanding because there's a lot of different ways epilepsy can come about. And there's a lot of push to start developing therapies that you know are more preventing uh, the development of epilepsy itself, this epileptogenesis. And we really kind of approach this as, can we start understanding epileptogenesis, the generation of this disease? And it became very apparent that these adult-born granule cells, these resident stem cells in the hippocampus that are continuously giving rise to new, new cells offered an opportunity to do so, right? So this, this paper um, piggybacks off of a the previous Nature Communications paper where we basically identified these aberrant new neurons as uh, pro-epileptic neurons. And we really just trying to understand a mechanism like what's forcing them into this abnormal development versus a normal development. And I think that's really the heart of it is we think that this aberrant neurogenesis offers therapeutically a targeting that we could use for a true anti-epileptic and not just an anti-seizure drug. Um, but if we can understand perhaps the molecular mechanisms behind it, then we can start to underlying disease um, genesis. So when Zane came to the lab first as a postdoc, he, I think he was hoping that he could study the, the role of these adult-born granule cells and learn that if he understands the mechanism, he can learn how to promote regeneration. But after, after many years of working on this, all of the conclusions, all of the results sort of point to that there is this darker side of adult neurogenesis. And I think there's a lot of implications as well for when you're trying to re, uh, replace neurons in the brain, either through exogenous stem cells or exogenous neurons. And uh, Chris can tell, tell us also about sort of his thoughts in that area. Um, yeah, sure. I think that it's interesting to think about whether this is a, a problem of the stem, stem cells themselves, or it's a, a problem of timing in the stem cells. Um, and so I think it, it is very interesting to think about not only how you replace stem cells or repair with stem cells, but how you control for incorrect stem cell function. So one of the hallmarks of these, of these, uh, these aberrantly gener or these newly born uh, adult 
stem or granule cells, sorry, is is their mismigration. I think that's sort of the first sort of the one benchmark thing. And that leads to all these sort of network miswiring and recurrency. And, and you've really borne some of that out. But um, some of the, the, the really fundamental stuff is like, how, how do we, so can you just say something about the timeline? Because the time, time is very important in these studies. So there's an initial seizure or a seizure of pilocarpine insult. That, and then there's a period that you, after which all the neurogenesis that happens then ends up somehow modified. And so what you're looking at is really that early time window. Is that right? Can you just say something about the actual technical part about, about the work so that we can? Yeah, so, excuse me. So the first, the original uh, Cho et al. 2015 paper, we used a transgenic approach, approach to ablate the cells. And one of the, the caveats with that is once we've ablated, they're gone. We can't study them anymore. So we can't study why anything's happening to them. So we wanted to switch to something that's more modulatory, something we can turn on, but doesn't remove the cell, something we can turn off, but this, you know, we can still study the cell, right? So we switched to optogenetics, we switched to dreads, um, mostly because we could control the timing of all of these because we really wanted to focus on this early time point. So in these rodent models, you know, you give a convulsant um, pilocarpine in this in this case, there's other um, ways to do this too with canic acid or something. And then you wait a period of time. And during that period of time, this latent period, it can be a couple weeks to a month. Uh, that's when the seizures progress. That's when all you have these circuit changes. That's when you have the cells dying. That's when you have basically the brain permanently changing so that you develop the epilepsy. Well, what's nice is we can also coincide the maturation of these stem cells with that same time. So it, it, it it's almost like they line up together. So cells that are born right at the time of the, this injury, this pilocarpine-induced injury, um, the timing of their maturation, it's about four weeks, about a month or so, matches pretty closely with that latent period of seizure development. So to us, that was something that was pretty cor strongly correlative in terms of studying. So we, we're trying to also piggyback on terms of that, right? So then for us, you know, basically the, the incentive of this week, it's gotta be an early period, right? If these cells are born right at the time of the injury, um, there's gotta be something immediately disrupting the way that they develop. This comes from a lot of former work from Jack Parrott. So he mapped out a lot of how these cells evolve. So if you label old cells, young cells, new cells at all ages, you really show that it's the most immature, most actively dividing stem cells that give rise to the, the bad cells. You know, if you you look at the mature cells at the time of this, the seizure, when they're fully mature, they don't really change that much. They, you know, they may change a little bit in response to the seizure, but there's no permanent alterations. So it's really this opportunity for the stem cells when they're essentially born into this trauma environment. Um, that forces them to you know, develop inappropriately. And one of the hallmarks of that is this increased calcium that you are then able to modulate and really just basically reverse the course yeah, of so, where you think. Reverse yeah, it. so there's a whole list of things, a whole list that um, 
people have identified in terms of what these cells do. And part of the, the struggle we've had is dissecting them out. So we've got this ectopic migration, we've got these mossy fiber sproutings, we've got uh, hyalur basal dendrites, and, and there's some camps that are really favoring on one versus the rest. Um, but it's people are we're still struggling to dissect out to see which one's doing the most or contributing the most to something, right? So at this point, we still have- Or how related they are, How right? related because they are, Because it right? seems- so, it seems like the cal when you reverse calcium, you change the way the the dendritic migration happens, right? That's right. So one, I think the the nicest, the cleanest things that we demonstrate in this paper is simply by activating calcium with this HM3DQ dread, we cleanly see there's a mismigration, and that's associated with seizures, right? We don't really see other any of these other cell changes. Um, and to me, that's that's a really clean way to understand, uncouple some of these these features that we haven't really been able to do before. Um, and so I, I, I think we're kind of starting to get there. And so I think hopefully moving forward in the future, this is giving us an approach to do so, right? It's so super... is this calcium? What can the calcium be doing to migration cues, right? So then downstream of calcium, are we disrupting, you know, uh, it, yeah. It's super compelling because the structure function relationship of the network is actually, it's completely laid out in this story and you get more recurrency, you get less um, cortical uh, integration happening. I mean, it's just, it seems like from start to finish from like, you know, calcium all the way to the network that it's just like a very, like it's a sort of a great roadmap to start thinking about. I mean, super exciting. Great work. Thank you. Yeah, and I think... It really, um, I mean, we, we took it step by step. Why was this happening? Somebody asked us, you know, like, why, why is this, why, when you do this, why would this happen? Well, you should look at this. So we look at that and then that would lead to the next step. And we're like, well, if, if we're changing the position of these cells, if we're forcing them to move, migrate differently, we're clearly going to change the circuit, right? I mean, I think that's inevitable. So how is that doing? How, how do we do that? Well, what can we do to approach that out and we answer that how can we monitor that so thank you Zane, do you have thoughts on the persistence of this i mean i think it's it's easy to understand that an insult might cause a transient problem but this is a problem that persists and so why don't the cells just fix themselves down the road after the insult that's yeah that's a good question um so, so I think, I mean, one curiosity is how generalizable is this to other insult models, injury models, or even uh, epilepsy models? And so, so there's another, um, maybe Zane mentioned it, but one of the leading causes of epilepsy is traumatic brain injury. At least, and then at least um, us and other groups, you know, attempting to model post-traumatic seizures, um, not all of the mice develop epilepsy, even though they we very you know try to carefully control the initial insult. So I think you, the question is is why why are there these differences in the in the you know the disruption of the circuit, the formation of epilepsy between different animals um, who are otherwise you know similar genetics, similar injury environment, and um, and so that, that's a very important question that I'm not sure we're, I mean, we're interested in addressing, but I'm not sure at this point we really know. And if, it's, if it has to do with this calcium 
at this early period? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, a, a lot of it also comes down to uncoupling these, these characteristics that we, we can identify, the migration, the, the dendritic changes. Um, and I think different trauma events, traumatic brain injury, pyelocarpy, you know, they change a bunch of different things differently. Um, and we know, for example, there's, uh, it's published where if you take a DAB1 knockout, which is, uh, you know, critical and real in signaling so that it's a cell migration cue, you can drive ectopic granule cells, but this, the mice don't develop seizures, right? So we know there are models where it's not sufficient that it's this migration alone to cause seizures. So then there's, you know, there's got to be other things involved, right? If that's, you know, the pilocarpine model itself has got a lot of issues. It's a lot. It's not a clean model. You know, we're changing a lot of things, right? Traumatic brain injury. You know, if it's if it's generalizable to other trauma-induced epilepsies, you know, trauma, traumatic brain injury changes the hippocampus tremendously, right? It completely transforms it if you if you look at these models completely. It, so there's, it, I think we're starting now to try to uncouple a lot of these things that might start to answer that question, Chris, about like what's causing this persistent. And I think it gets down to that not all of these aberrant new neurons are the same. Some of them are more aberrant than the others. Some of them are possibly still good. Some of them are, you know, more bad, I guess you can say. Um, and I don't, and I think it comes down to that. You know, I think it's, we're gonna find out there's just heterogeneity in these populations that are gonna inherently make it more difficult to understand. One of the really interesting things about this is the, the mysterious nature of, of, these, of, of any neuron during maturation, right? There are all of these dogmas that we have about, about cellular cascades and about like GABA, hyperpolarizing versus depolarizing, right? That we take for granted, but it's kind of a, I mean, and, and calcium is such a ubiquitous signal and you can imagine that different time points in maturation that, that a calcium load is gonna have a completely different explosive set of, of, of effects on you know, gene regulation, on, on all kinds of structural things. Um, so it's kind of interesting how to me, how the migration is so stereotyped, or is it that stereotyped, or is it just all over the place? Because you would imagine that there would be a lot more variability, or maybe there is variability. Is there variability in the migration? It's just, it's not, it doesn't go where it should, right? It's not all sort of yeah. um, in one direction or another. Is that right? Or it, So it, it does somewhat, and so if you compare like chant, like a normal mouse versus a pilo mouse, it, it kind of disperses both directions, but mostly, oh, you know, inappropriately into the hylus, which is what we, that's how where we define these ectopic cells. Um, I, you know, I, I would highlight that we're not focusing on, like this paper doesn't also just focus on these cells. It's very technically difficult to just focus on these cells. You know, I think we all kind of want to, you know, um, but we, we can't exclude that a lot of the analysis, you might have aberrant cells that look normal Right, so we, we can't really exclude how, just the way it looks, what it does. So if you patch all of these cells, you know, some of them in the hylus, they're functionally different than if you patch a cell in the, the subgranular zone. Well, if you patch a separate cell in the subgranular zone, it may still be different, 
right? Maybe a third type of, of cell. So there's there's such a variety in the way that these cells develop that I think that's what's really difficult to say. And it could be that that's what calcium. So for the ectopically migrating cells, maybe calcium response is more exaggerated, right? So in the paper, we I basically plot every cell in the analysis. And you can see the diversity in the response. Some of them, it's crazy, and some of it, it looks kind of normal, right? Um, it could be that those crazy cells are the ones that will migrate ectopically, right? And then some of them just don't. So we, we haven't been able to you know, do any kind of like lineage tracing and understanding that. You know, these are, this was the first time we started looking at it. So I think that's, it could come down to something like that, right? Should we just have different responses in these cells that might drive different developmental programs, whether it's gene regulation or, you know, membrane properties, it's, it's difficult to say at this point. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really important thing to, to not leave people with the impression that we know what makes, what, what really is different between aberrant and non-aberrant cells. And we're not, we don't think it's strictly due to location. Um, in fact, what, like what Zane was saying, a lot of the analysis of the cells was done unbiased and not pref, you know, preferring one location over the other. Um, but it would be interesting to, to ide eventually identify what, what, you know, are there genes that are specifically activated in aberrant cells? And if we can find those specific genes, we can maybe use them, like use the promoters of those genes to then go back to make these tools even more specific. But at this point, we don't have the tools themselves are not as specific as we would like. So, so something else that you guys have, have, have written and are obviously thinking a lot about is the genetic diversity of epilepsy models and how um, in vivo models like, you know, the ones that exist. And of course you, you mentioned pilocarpine is not the only model um, that people use in vivo. Um, so how, how, um, IP stem cells are really going to help get at some of the kind of issues in there that are embedded in some of that genetic diversity um, of, of things that cause epileptiform activity. So can you say something about what the, like the general mechanisms that you're working out in, in this sort of study and how you're sort of gonna take those and run with those in this other model, which is, is has another level of complexity to it. Like how does one, how is one thing gonna inform the other or are these just two completely different sets of like explorations that are gonna hopefully land in some common areas. <laughs> no one wants Jenny, to touch I mean, that. Jenny, you can, I can. Zane, you can start. We can um, move on to the next question. So, no, no, it's a good, it's a, it's a huge question. Um, so we had, a, we had a neurologist, pediatric neurologist joined the lab years ago. And I remember in the lab meeting, we're, we're talking about you know, pilocarpines. And he was like, why are you guys studying acquired epilepsy? Like 70% of patients with epilepsy, it's not acquired, it's a genetic epilepsy. So why are you focused on the 30%? Right? Why are you spending resources and you know, eight years of your life trying to understand something that's affecting 30% of all the people we treat, right? And it, it really opened my eyes because then I was like, yeah, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, but I think 
to get back to what Jenny was saying, generalizing this to other models, you know, I, I think that's still a huge question that we have to really see. Do we see aberrant neurogenesis in patients, right? Um, we can get resected hippocampus tissue, we can stain for some of these markers, and we can start to see a lot of the adult neurogenesis in humans um, that's being published comes from resected epilepsy patients. So it, it would be really interesting to see if that's the case. You know, do patients with Dravet syndrome, which have you know a sodium channel mutation, do they have aberrant neurogenesis? Right? Is this something that we can generalize to other other epilepsies? And I think that would be. For and the, you can you, you imagine you, you're going to be doing this in organoids. I mean, this is this is exciting. I mean, how the what are the sort of disease in a dish models? Because I don't think in terms of that. Yet I'm learning, so can you kind of right. so connect so that? one way that you know in Jenny's lab um, that this neurologist kind of started going down was modeling patient diseases, right? So he had access to patients, and we could collect uh, their blood essentially, and then eventually with Chris's help, you know, with the stem cell core, you know, start deriving, reprogramming these the patient blood samples to their iPS cells and then we can model their diseases with organoids, you know, with 2D models, you know, with whatever, to kind of just understand the genetics. So I think epilepsy, we're starting to really, in the last 10, 15 years, really started understanding that the genetics is complicated and difficult and there's a lot more we don't know than we do know. And so everybody's starting to pick, you know, genes that are involved and we're starting to really understand that, you know, certain Epilepsies were classified a certain way, uh, but it's even further diverse because even within that specific classification, you know, there's different mutations that could do different things. So it's this op this approach um, really helps kind of facilitate that. You know, I think there's a hurdle when it comes to modeling in a mouse, just in terms of generating the mouse, studying in it, you know, re relating it back to the patient condition, patient mutation. So using the IPS cell um, model approach, you know, it's a little bit higher throughput. It's a little bit more, you know, you can retain a lot of the patient background information, study some of that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, oh, go ahead, Jenny. Well, I, I was saying that I think I've, I've always had this profound interest in translational neuroscience and uh, so, you know, when we started working on um, adult neurogenesis and its relationship to epilepsy using the mouse models, it, it, it became very clear to all of us immediately that we're, I mean, it's important to dissect the mechanisms, but the vast majority of patients already come to the clinic with epilepsy. So, um, you know, although we don't really know how elucidation of the adult neurogenesis mechanisms, they still may help or they may help that, you know, that population of patients, we just don't know. But at the same time, you know, the, the organoid models allow us to kind of go back in time in a sense and recreate the process, right? I mean, gen, I mean basically human tissue is inaccessible, particularly um, you know, pediatric tissue. And so we just don't know if one of the reasons why a lot of brain disorders, if there is a developmental origin, so, so that's, all, that's also an open question. 
So, so I think, you know, one of the things that really benefited us before, before was, you know, I think just establishing my lab at a medical center where, where, um, you know, we were, we were able to, you know, collaborate with neurologists and really be able to try to, you know, bridge that gap between the basic to the clinical side. And that, and that's something of course, that we've continued to do here at UTSA. And then we've established the stem cell core to try to facilitate that. And I think one of the interesting things that you can do is, you know, with the, with the mouse, you're also just getting a snapshot, right? You, you pick a time point and you're seeing what's going on at that exact time point where with Jenny's lab, they've been doing a number of living studies. And so you can go in and see what's happening in those organoids before you start the experiment, start the experiment, and then follow it down the road too. So you can start to get at that question of what was going on in those stem cells before you started the experiment. And maybe that can explain some of the variability you're seeing after the insults. So I think they're really complementary techniques to, to try and break down what's happening. Really exciting. Well, thank you guys for talking about this. There's so much we could talk about. I mean, Chris, with a lot of the dopamine stuff that you're doing, so exciting. We'll have to come back and talk to you about that. And Zane, sure. best of luck to you. We hope to see you in a couple of years with some new data and a new podcast. So that'd be great. Looking forward to that. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, everyone. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks.